Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome, Just Fly Performance Podcast listeners, to another episode of the show, this time being a Q&A with yours truly. I'm turning the tables on myself throwing out the question lines on Facebook, Instagram, and this time LinkedIn, which actually was pretty cool to do. And just to see what you guys are wondering, what you guys wonder, um, what my thoughts are on particular aspects of sport performance. It's interesting, the longer I've done the show, I, I get asked a lot. Uh, it's like, you've talked to all these experts. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Um, and I think my experience is really no different than everyone out there in many ways. We all we all take things and we make it our own. There's no one ultimate training program that um, the workout gods sent down and will work for every athlete optimally. It's all about how the coach puts it all together. So that being said, I'm, I'm just happy to share my thoughts on a few uh, topics of performance, some of which I have picked up from the many awesome guests that have uh, graced each episode prior uh, and then some just myself over time being in the trenches and coaching or just going through workouts myself and trying to figure stuff out. So I uh, hope you guys are all doing well, by the way. Um, I really appreciate you guys listening to this show, this podcast. Uh, we've come a long way. I've come a long way. I, I actually was listening to some of the first Q&As that I did, uh, like it was episode 30 or 40 or something. And the first one I definitely did because I just ran out of guests at the time. And a few of these I certainly have. Um, I, I'm good right now, but I just wanted to, I wanted to pause and, and take a break and just kind of get the feedback, get a feel for, for what you guys want to know. I always think it's interesting just to, to check in and, and, and find out. So that being said, let's get on to the questions. We got a lot of them. Hopefully I can get through all of them. If you put a question out there and I can't get to it or I missed it, I, I apologize. I would have loved to, um, I, lo I would love to get everyone, but if I missed it, uh, feel free to send me a message on one of the social media channels that you uh, threw a question out, and hopefully I can get an answer for you. Anyways, let's get on to the questions. There's some great ones. Thank you for everyone who sent something in. So here we go. Uh, first one, this one came off of Facebook. Joe's Juice. Uh, Joe says, what is the one biggest game changer you have incorporated performance-wise? Uh, actually, it's a double question. So we'll we'll take that one on first. The biggest game changer for me, and really, I'll talk about uh, the last. I you actually I just did an episode which was like my viewpoints and transformation. So I probably talked about this. Um, honestly, I probably talk about 
a few of these topics throughout the whole um, list of questions as we go today. I'm probably going to repeat some stuff that I did on the other five. I, I try my hardest not to. So I'll keep this short. If you listened to the last episode, I most likely talked extensively about neurotyping and how that has changed the game for me. Um, and so it, not only I've always known some athletes have a strong work, nervous system, some athletes have a weak nervous system, and the athletes who have a strong nervous system can handle more high-intensity plyos and heavier weightlifting, and they can sprint harder more often, and their nervous system just it likes that stuff. It can, it can do that stuff better and more often, whereas athletes with a weaker nervous system, well, they have to do longer sprints, relatively speaking, maybe lower-intensity plyos. Maybe they will do better with uh, slightly higher reps in the weightlifting realm, not going to high intensity so often. So uh, those things I've, I've known for a while, but the, the neurotyping course just put everything in its place in, in the sense of um, even athletes with a strong nervous system, like type 1B and elastic or type 1A and intensity driven, those two athletes train quite differently. And when Charlie Francis even talked about some athletes doing better with plyometrics, some athletes like the gym more, um, those types of things, uh, those are the 1As and 1Bs that he was referring to. So for me, knowing how to look at an athlete's personality, um, just look at the generally the way they move, the way they process movements in the weight room, and helping me to uh, understand that better has, has just been a game changer. And I'm able, I'm, I feel like I... I mean, I've coached athletes who have had good levels of success, but for me to truly consider myself a great coach, it's it's not just that athlete that you put at the top. It's the athletes, um, it's every athlete. It's those athletes that maybe were at the bottom and how far can you bring them up and can you reach every athlete as much as you can? I mean, I don't think there's ever going to be a coaching season where every single athlete on the team exceeded their expectations completely you know it's it's never going to be like that but it's neurotyping has helped me not only to train the best athletes a little bit better but also to reach a wider spectrum so uh, that's been a big one something i'll just talk, say this quickly too because i've mentioned neurotyping last episode and i don't want to be redundant but uh, pvc pipe work for the feet is unreal it is awesome i've done a few instagram videos of it um, i've recently spent some time with gary marinovich down at Marinovich training in Santa Cruz, which I'm I'm sure I'll get to here later this episode, and that they do a lot of PVC PVC pipe work there. Uh, I've been talking with David Weck. He has also mentioned how much of it he has done, and it got to a point where I'm like, okay, I need to start doing this. I'll give it a shot. I have this large roller made out of PVC that I never used because I basically gave up foam rolling years ago, and so this thing is collecting dust. Well, I'll cut it in half and I'll just play around on it and. Honestly, that's the best decision training-wise that I've made in years, if not ever, because it's completely changed um, lower body injury prevention. My Achilles have become my Achilles tendons are way better now, and I, I'm jumping higher. Actually, I I touched um, 11-1 off two uh, two leg jump. Uh, I'm 35 now. When, my best ever was 11-3 when I was 24, and I my squat. I can tell you for a fact that my squat is way 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 less than it was when I was 24. So uh, a lot of the impetus in that jump is coming from just improved foot ability and um, my ability to process the tendons and fascia and do it right and all that type of things. Not that I was doing it wrong when I hit 11-3 and I was 24, um, but it's just, it's just been good. It's been really good to me. We don't look at the feet enough, and uh, it's, just, it's an area that still demands exploration. And so PVC 
pipe work recently has been a huge game changer. Okay, two-part question. Second part, Joe says, what is the biggest mistake that smart coaches make? Um, so I, this is an interesting, right? Right. I don't want it to be like a call out or anything because um, I've made tons of mistakes in my coaching career. So I'm, I'm certainly, and I'm only 35, so I'm in a limited position to say things in, in many regards. But I, I will say this, just from my perspective, from where I've been, come from the results I've seen, putting everything in context, I'll say this is, what is probably just not trying things out themselves. Um, this is maybe a multi-part answer, but not trying um, a training method out oneself. I mean, I realize that once we get to a certain age, we, we can't do particular training methods anymore, um, at least not at maybe full capacity. But I think that our, our own intuition is very driven from our feelings and what we feel in our own body from a movement perspective, um, if you can train and do do training exercises and put them in pro in actual practice in your own program, that's awesome. I mean, otherwise, you know, it's certainly great to be able to use it with athletes, no doubt. I mean, that's a huge, huge, huge learning opportunity as well. But to make things, I mean, everything really comes from our intuition, the intuition muscle, uh, so to speak. And so, being able to try something out yourself, and, and that's the thing too, is like we make judgments on movements so often, like, oh, I don't like that, well, I like that just try it just do it <laughs> do it and see how it feels do it and see how jumping and running and cutting feels afterwards if you can um and going to z health seminars they really do that the biofeedback thing where it's like you do an exercise and then do a mobility test to see if your nervous system liked it or not and i don't i don't think you necessarily even have to go into that i think that stuff is cool but just go through things and see if it made a change. I mean, that's like with me and PVC pipes. I'm like, holy cow, this stuff works great. You better believe that my athletes are going to be doing this work. And I wouldn't have known that unless I just tried it. And so having the open mind to try stuff is probably th the biggest thing. I think all it's very easy just to hear a, a, high, a big name coach uh, say something, say an exercise is great or post a video or, or whatever and just start doing it without even trying it yourself or, th or really thinking about what's going on. So uh, that would be a, a big one. And then another one too is I think <clears throat> is just discounting. And this is the more I've learned from uh, Adarian Barr, the more I watch video and I'm slowly accumulating my 10,000 hours of video watching to become that expert in human movement, not just sprinting and jumping, but all sports. Um, throwing and, and swinging and and agility and cuts and movement and it all it all it all ties together but uh, I've found that really learning from the world's best athletes is the way to go uh, a lot of times like people look at Usain Bolt and say well, well he's a freak uh, you know he, he can drag his toe because he's a freak and it doesn't matter so fast anyways or all these things and I, I think that we shouldn't um, we shouldn't discount the freaks uh, the freaks are who we learn from, as well as uh, the animals, too. I think there's a lot. I mean, as far as the speed relative average, if you've seen like the YouTube, there's like a YouTube video where it has like a human racing a horse and a cheetah and, and all these different animals. They kind of are like going at the same time and they're racing 100 meters or 400. And it's got like the cheetah finishing and then the human. I mean, we are so slow. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy. And granted, we were upright and we we're on two legs. And the, the strategy that we produce force is much different than an animal who has just by their positioning and the way they're, they're low to the ground. They have four legs. 
their their limb length um, distribution they they output way more horizontal force than we do there's a big difference there but you can still learn so much by watching them and that's something that I was you know I was just recently reading an article on Marv Marinovich um, it was an older one and I had read it before honestly but it's like you know after going through his system a little bit you you see it with new eyes and and like he's he had grown up watching animals and I've talk to uh, you know um, <clears throat> high level elite swim coach motor learning experts who have this intuitive but effective uh, incredibly effective way of teaching and they grew up watching animals and I've talked to Terry Barr and he's watches animals and so uh, this observation of the elite is an important thing so um, I, I just think that that's something that we can all uh, learn more from is uh, spending more time watching the world's best okay so uh, next question is from Instagram. Nathan Kiley says, Hey, Joel, in your opinion, what are the most overrated training interventions you see being popularized today? Uh, okay, that's an awesome question. Um, I mean, there's probably a lot. I, Well, I will say this. I, <laughs> I'm a slight bit of a hermit um, in terms of social media. I actually, I spend, in terms of my learning process, um, okay, so I used to spend a ton of time on forums back in the day. This was... For those of you out there who are, let's say, under the age of 30 or maybe 25, I'm not sure, but there used to be this thing called forums before social media existed where people would hop on this forum thread and type out these very longer forum answers and, and go back and forth about these performance topics. And so I was really into that stuff for a while. Um, once the transition made from social media and were conversations on social media, actually, I don't really get on that too often. Um, and so I, maybe I'm not super aware of some of the trends, but uh, some trends I do see when I am on social media is this, and so I'll cover it, and I, I think this is very overrated, is uh, triple extension in, in sprinting and acceleration is, is a big triple extension and a big long first step or first two steps. And I, I, and I see this, uh, I've seen this multiple places where people, you know, it's, it's funny actually, you, you see the slow motion on YouTube of a Safa Powell um, leaving the block and it's this big long jump out of the block and his coach is like you know longer steps are better and all this and that um, but then you watch him in like the 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 races where he's really fast like there was a, what comes to mind is a 60 meter dash that he ran and it was kind of like you know one of those things where he probably wasn't overly it, it wasn't a big meet so he wasn't going to have the harder time that he might typically have but his first step was really short there and he torched that race and the more elite athletes you watch, elite sprinters you watch, and and this is let alone team sports where it's just like quickness. I mean, in a, in a in a hundred meter dash or a, even a forty yard dash, you need patience. Um, if you're not patient, it's gonna really mess up uh, your your sprint. Um, team sports can athletes can spin their wheels a little quicker, relatively speaking, you could say. Um, but anyways, I, it's just. The full extension, it looks pretty, but at the end of the day, it messes up the timing. And I talk about this um, actually extensively in a new book of mine that's coming out. And actually, shoot, I wanted to, to give a plug for it because it's going to be on sale in a couple of weeks. It's called Speed Strength. And I think it's um, it's just been it's been a three-year project. It's it's the most exhaustive resource that you could imagine on sprint biomechanics and, and special strength training and plyometrics related and, and, and sprint drills, quote-unquote, and all these things. And, and planning and programming. So uh, definitely, I hope you guys uh, check that one out. But one of the things that when I was really putting together the sprint section, I, I was listing some research and 
one of the important and so here's something i do tend to get a little bit more intuitive driven sometimes when i'm talking about things i do like to bring research in when i can um, but one of the definitive factors in acceleration 100 meters is how uh, quickly athletes can recover uh, the the swing leg okay which i you know you may talk about that peter peter way study in 2000 uh, but no 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 it's it's all vertical force but uh, we we're talking the 100 meter dash acceleration uh the ability of an athlete to get that leg to the front fast to reposition that swing leg quickly in order to be in a good position for the next step is critical and and of course we've talked we've heard um these sprint biomechanists i believe ken clark when he was on the podcast was talking about front side dominance early because if you don't have it early uh, if it falls out early, you can't get it back later. And so repositioning speed is important. But, well, guess what? When you uh, really extend far and you really jump far, it takes a really long time for that um, long trail leg to get back. And there was I was actually watching a really cool start. It was, um, it was Daphne Shippers and Elaine uh, Thompson. And I forget if it was 100 or a 60. But it was a really perfect example to see um, two very powerful athletes they have about the same reaction time. Um, Shippers extends just a fraction of a second longer than Thomas, like keeping that longer post, whereas Thomas hits a slightly incomplete extension and instantly recovers the swing leg. And by step two, she's already ahead, basically. Step two or three, she's ahead. And that was kind of the margin that she didn't really relinquish in the race. And so, um, and that's just track. And so when we look at team sports is even more so it's like why are we why would we take a team sport athlete and have them do an exaggerated first step and it's also the difference between um sprinting is not jumping and i myself am a great example i'm a great jumper i have a good standing long jump a good vertical jump and but my like 10 yard dash has just historically been horrendous and it's all because of the timing and this is something i have total credit for adarian bar and teaching me you know, I was actually just doing 10s the other day, 10-yard dashes. And, of course, you could say, oh, well. And, and even, you know, um, the, the podcast I did with Justin Moore, just because you run a good 10 doesn't mean you're going to run a good 40. Uh, I think a lot of that comes with the the posture that you utilize. And there is a lot of efficiency that you could say, you know, if you are if you're spin your wheels too fast and you burn it all up. But uh, what I found was doing more traditional um, you know, I did every traditional cue in the book, trying to get a better 10. And then I just went to something that Adarian had taught me, which was I set up with my right leg in front. And my first step is my left. And instead of going long, I went short with my first step and long with my second. And I kept an actual asymmetrical pattern throughout the sprint. And I instantly dropped the 10th. Like it was like that. And it was easy. And so, and that just is a reflection of getting the timing right. And I felt like if I would have sustained that over a longer period, it would have been no problem either. Like, I don't think that it would have been, it, would, it didn't feel like spinning my wheels. There was a very smooth cadence to it. Obviously, this is just a personal anecdote, but um, I would strongly encourage um, everyone to explore that, that, that short first step asymmetrical pattern. There's a lot of power there. Um, I mean, we look at even Usain Bolt, the fastest man alive, has an asymmetrical run, and running is rhythmic you know so it's going to extrapolate itself out anyways it's just something that i i do think is important to say because we we tend to be hung up in this you know like more force if a little bit of weightlifting is good a lot is better you know if improving your squat 20 pounds helped you um, put an inch or two on your jump or maybe cut a, a tenth off your 30 then of, oh of course you know 40 more pounds is going to keep that trend going you know and, and we make mistakes like this 
and so i think it's like yin and yang you know we, we have yang which is like the that masculine energy yin is the feminine you know that's that's like this like force and then there's the subtleties and for some reason i don't know i think in the in the track industry or sports performance there is always this trend of pushing things to that right as far as you can and never really exploring the other side and so i, I the, the answer is always somewhere in the middle the world record is always somewhere in the middle it's never always on the force end of things so you have to you have to explore timing and you have to explore how each step impacts the next and you have to look at the best in the world and um, that's just a a little I don't, I don't know if i call it rant because i don't i don't i don't feel like i rant i don't get upset about things i never i'm not the kind of person who sees something on social media and gets upset about it and has to you know has to tell my buddies um oh look at this but i just do think it's a trend that i think might be misleading people over time as to how the best athletes move and even how to um get a good start for the 40 because that that switch that early switch is is the key and if you go too long you're not going to get a good switch maybe that's a better way of putting it okay anyways uh okay i had two questions um that were pretty much the same so it's cool to see people on the same wavelength maybe this is the time where this happens uh, two questions from uh, lumi and jj kleb about patellar tendonitis how to pre prevent patellar tendinopathy knee issues etc etc so uh, getting into this because yeah no knees uh Hurt knees is no good. It's it's no fun, and it really, especially if you're a jumping athlete it, or you like lifting, it really puts a damper on training. So, um, just a few things. Um, I'm not gonna you know give you a whole book here, but here's just a few training methods and means um, that I think are cool. I enjoy doing, and I've gotten good success uh, with both myself and my athletes. And that is this. First is extreme slows. Uh, stuff from, I pull from Jay Schrader. So extreme isos and extreme slows. Uh, extreme slow is simply doing a lift and performing it the the eccentric phase very slowly not really doing a concentric i guess you could but i just do it eccentric taking between 30 seconds and a minute and a half to do the eccentric and then isos extreme isos i've talked about that a lot a lot just holding an isometric position in the stretch range uh, those are generally pretty good things for uh, and i remember the first time i actually heard jim snyder talking about this at jay DeMeo seminar like three or four years ago, he called it like fascial remodeling, basically having athletes hold these positions isometrically for two minutes. And it had a great effect on the um, the straightness, I guess you could say, of the fascia. Basically, it's like aligning everything and causing a better patterning. And I believe Jim is a massage therapist. I hope I don't get this wrong, but I think he said he could feel it because he works on his athletes and he said he could also feel the difference, I, I believe. Um, hopefully my memory is good on that one. So those are two cool things. Um, collagen supplementation, I think that's pretty common if you have joint issues. Uh, one thing I've learned recently that I think I can peg a little bit to some of my, if my knees are flaring up, is uh, overgripping the toes. So uh, we tend to live in a world, I think, where there's a lot of like grip the toes down when you squat, grip the toes down when you lift. Uh, grip the toes, grip the toes. And and if you don't believe me, it's probably been programmed into you, I'd imagine, if you've been in the weight room a long time or just just by virtue of being in the weight room. Um, just have an awareness. Next time you're doing cleans or squats or a full catch clean is a good one or anything, just just have an awareness of what your toes are doing. There's a good chance that as you're lifting, those, things, those suckers are going to be gripping the ground hard. And so uh, what happens when you grip, when you really grip the toes into the ground and, and credit for... Um, 
I've had the great opportunity to learn from Adarian Barr and David Weck on this. Uh, but yeah, when you grip when you grip the ground with your toes, uh, what you're doing is you're kind of locking yourself into one plane of movement, and it's a break. So you're basically throwing the brakes on and locking yourself into the sagittal plane. And when the body really twists, it utilizes at the level of the ankles and the feet, uh, pronation and supination use dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, inversion, and eversion. And so you're kind of locking yourself out of those ranges a little bit. When you do that, well, where does the force go? It goes up the shin into the knee is kind of that next joint up. So if you've you know, seen the joint by joint approach, you've probably heard that where the the, it's or where the pain is at eight, right? Like it's, it's starting somewhere else. And so over gripping the toes can be an issue there. Um, you might also ask, well, what to do then if not to over grip? Well, one, just have an awareness of what your toes are doing. If you feel them gripping, don't do it. It takes a long time to um, outwire, rewire. <laughs> I like it, rewire, um, which is uh, the name of the conference that Adarian Barr is putting on and, and it hosted not too long ago. Uh, but so you uh, something Pat Davidson said actually if I was to if you were to squat and I was you were to say what should my feet do um, I liked I asked Pat Davidson on our first podcast I believe but he had mentioned like having the tripod of the foot feeling the ground so the heel the ball of the fifth metatarsal the ball of the first and then with just a slight um, just like ticking the gas pedal slightly pressure with the big toe so basically the little toes aren't gripping and yeah that's i like that actually because i feel like it helps you really kind of work in the triangle and it's it's better than just um, going to that toe grip reflex so uh, that's also something that i would definitely work on um, another thing too this is something i've learned from a darian bar and this is a huge reason that i've gotten a, a fair amount of knee and mostly achilles problems over the years but uh, knee is as well is watch the waveforms on the plyometrics that you do so uh, rather than so let's say a hurdle hop right like hurdle hop is vertical 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 and but the thing is if you watch athletes playing sports we're in that sport even track and field even high jump triple jump long jump you never see that waveform you see long high long high long high um, and, and those types of things uh, and so when you expose yourself to this vertical only type of waveform that just that really compresses it causes the body to not be able to dissipate forces easily through the joints and well what takes it your Achilles and your knee so doing like long high type plyos if you're doing plyos can be a good practice it's just way easier on the joints and it lets you be fast and so that's one of my favorites uh, okay last last one there is I've I've heard I've never done it myself but I've heard awesome stuff about the um, um, ATG guys, the knees over toes guys, in the sense of um, people who had really serious knee issues and did some of that work and had a, a huge benefit from it. It really resolved their knee pain. So I think that stuff is good. I mean, your body can adapt to anything. We see the knees way over the toes and we're like, whoa, like, ah, that's so bad. And if you if you start, it's like, I mean, yeah, if you if you have knee problems and you you catch a catch a full catch clean with your knees way forward with 300 pounds, it probably isn't going to feel good. But if you slowly build up over time, the body's going to, and, and this too, with the isometrics, like if you can adapt in the long position, the long stretch position, that's the best position to lay down that collagen in. Uh, and it's just the best position to adapt to for healthy joints. So I think the stuff that those guys are doing is cool. If you check them out on Instagram, I'm sure you can get a lot of great ideas there. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. 
Okay, here we go. So um, they have another question that's probably, well, let's see. I had a few people with, with somewhat similar ideas and thoughts. And so, and, and actually I covered this on uh, like four podcasts ago, four Q&As ago on uh, Marv Marinovich's training. And I, I was actually went back and listened to my answers there. And it's like, holy cow, I, 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 I gave an answer that I think was reflective of my res early results. But now that I actually know people who actually use the system and have actually been coached in the system, I I'm able to answer this more fully. But this is a really cool question. So uh, Brandon McKnight, thank you for asking it because I'm really excited to answer this. Honestly, this might be uh, one of the biggest answers uh, in terms of time that I take up today. Uh, whether that's a good or a bad thing, I don't know. But I'm really excited to talk about this and my experience here. But what are the key similarities and differences between the different neurological training styles? So Marinovich, InnoSport, Sport, DB Hammer, uh, and also Jerome Simeon was listed there who is... Um, who has utilized uh, Jay Schrader's work. And what do you find to be the most effective aspects of each? So uh, I'll just kind of keep it to Marv Marinovich's work and uh, Jay Schrader's work. And so these are the two uh, systems that have had the most profound impact on the way that I've trained athletes and trained athletes in the last two to three years. Uh, Marv Marinovich's work really kicking in this past year. And I, I think that they are systems that, you know, they're on the fringe, right? The, and that's a good thing. You know, they're, I feel like they're, they're spearheading the field, each in their own unique ways. And so, okay, commonalities. A dislike of traditional tempo weightlifting would probably be the biggest similarity uh, in the sense of trying to avoid uh, co-contractions. And uh, Matt Cooper talked about this a little bit on the last podcast we did together. So basically getting into positions where, let's just say a squat a traditional squat up and down the quads are on the whole time they're on eccentrically on the way down they're on concentrically on the way up then towards the top of the range of motion of the squat as your body has to throw the brakes on to keep the bar from going off your back um, you're going to uh, program yourself not to extend fully and and all these things i'm not saying that i don't ever do squats i i utilize squats with my athletes but um, i keep all this stuff in serious context with the distribution of how much modality I utilize throughout a training session. So uh, yeah, both both systems seem to dislike just doing traditional weightlifting uh, with traditional tempos. And uh, I'd say Jay's approach uh, revolves a lot more around positions uh, and then utilizing those positions as a means to optimize neurological efficiency. Uh, it's, it was a little, it struck me or strikes me as a little more mathematical in nature. So a lot of 90 degree angle based work, or at least close to it, where one muscle can fire and the other muscle can elongate and basically just putting the body in positions to be very efficient and in a systematic way of doing so. And it's a little bit, it's, it's definitely claims to be not sports specific. It claims to be human specific, specific to, because a muscle doesn't know that it's hitting a tennis ball or kicking a soccer ball or anything. It's, it just, it claims to just organize the human body so the human body can do its thing. Um, Marv's training was, is a little bit more, I would say specific, or it's a little more involved in the movement side of things. I would say the movements take a little bit longer to learn and be good at, uh, being put through it myself now. And it, to me, learning it, it was very much, a lot of it was very much like fighting, like learning tension and relaxation. Um, if you've uh, seen any of Pavel's, uh, Satsaline's fast and loose stuff, or if you've read Easy Strength and you've read the fast and loose ideals, 
um, that's a critical part of that system. And so basically it's, it's running the body through a lot of a physio ball based balance work where again, it's all about the nervous system. It's not at all about pumping up or doing aesthetic stuff. It's entirely about how the nervous system is um, absorbing and then releasing force and doing so as efficiently as humanly possible. And so both of the systems are very, very much slanted towards the most efficient system, the most efficient and powerful neurological system that you can create with movement as a priority. They also, to my knowledge, both have a breathing as a high, high priority list where uh, I know in Jay's work, there's the nose breathing element of things, um, not, um, and then in, in Marv's work, uh, in my experience with it, not like not tensing your jaw, making sure your breathing is fluid and you don't like get stuck in, in a sympathetic state during reps and, and trying to make it as sport-like as possible. And I almost view it too. Um, I think a lot of it comes from, so, so I'll say this too, Mars work also, it's a lot more than just um, the ball work. And, and I haven't even been exposed to the entire system yet. But from my um, experience with like the plyometric end, there is a little bit more um, rhythm and coordination, it seems. Um, and it's so, so is my experience so far, like just different like box jump and hurdle jump combinations. You might, you can get more exploratory with it. Um, where Jay's work was more uh, neurological and there was obviously the the ARP wave and, and, and a really deep understanding of the neurological, the core neurological principles of the human body. So I hope I didn't butcher that. But uh, oh, also, too, one of the, the big things, too, and this is where I think someone has asked me uh, some of the biggest changes I've had. And maybe this will be a question later on, but there um, are aspects I keep with me. So what are some aspects of the system that that I do no matter that I've made my own and the biggest one for sure is less traditional weightlifting. I'm not saying I don't do traditional weightlifting anymore, um, but I do every year. It's like I do a little bit less of it um, and and doing more work at high velocity, doing more work where you're avoiding co-contractions, uh, doing more work at, at barely uh, either either full length ranges or specific ranges. Uh, one of the things I really like about Marv's training is working and the idea that 90% of the effectiveness or the power in a movement comes from that quick muscular impulse at the peak torque point. So you could say like in a vertical jump, at the bottom of the vertical jump, that spot where the muscle has to have fired to switch the downward to the upward, 90% of the jump is that muscle doing its job at that very instant in time. And that's also something I've learned from Adarian Bar with just how fast you have to be when those joints load in that very short time, you have to be that fast to get everything moving and unload at that exact instant. If you miss the unload, then you're a step behind. And so uh, learning to unload very quickly, but also fluidly has been a big thing. Uh, and so doing more, uh, even more partial range work, like pulsing par partial range work, pulsing partial range work on a ball and like getting tongue twisters going here um, has, has definitely been something uh, that I've I've definitely been all about, and I've really always been. I feel like I've always been about more high velocity work in general. I, I'm I'm a jumper. I'm an elastic athlete. It's it's near and dear to me, right? And we as coaches we project what we're good at onto our athletes, and the neurotyping has helped me to spare um, like the two Bs and the threes from from my reign of plyometrics. Uh, but I've I've definitely um, had an appreciation for really sport speed 
for for doing things at game speed as as well as you possibly can and even in uh in jay's system like the jumps it's all max intensity everything is is as intense as possible to uh, mimic what you're going to play like and because if you're practicing at submaximal intensity you're kind of teaching yourself to play at that intensity and when you're doing body weight movements you can harness that full just violent intensity and effort um, that is demanded body weight or very light weights allows you to really harness that speed and when you're using speed too the body has to work like it's supposed to when you're moving slow you can get a ton of compensators in um, but when you're moving really fast the body's ability to compensate is is much more limited uh, so yeah those are those are some keys uh, to the systems and those those two systems have had a huge and profound impact on me and, and i'm excited to learn more and more about them as time goes on and, and i hope that their you know their impact is is filters more and more into the coaching world okay next question so sean michael says and, and i hope i get this right i may have to paraphrase but basically thoughts on how to change uh, the environmental impact of the weight room so talking about transfer with reactionary lifts okay so one thing that i'm i'm really getting into uh, this is just early strides so i can't this is conjecturing take this for what it is um but the recent experience i've had with some of the marinovich training is that and working with gary marinovich in particular down in santa cruz recently uh, gary and i'm writing an article on this as well but gary made every set alive and what I mean by that is, and this is something that actually originally kind of turned me off a little bit to strength and conditioning, sports performance in my early internships, where I was weighing things between track, coaching track and coaching uh, strength and conditioning and sports performance, is in my early internships, you just, you'd go in the weight room and, and you, would, you would encourage athletes and motivate them, which is cool. Um, but usually it was just like, okay, you know, here's your lift. You have three sets of five cleans, you know, do these two things. Here you have three sets of ten. Everything else, okay. Keep your chest out, and that was pretty much that. Like there was very few pieces. It was very, very simple. And the best training is simple at, at its core, you know, no doubt. But it wasn't anything that really was challenging me. That was really like making me solve this this elaborate puzzle. Or I mean, because the human body in sport really is an elaborate puzzle. And or maybe I should say too, there was nothing that I felt like, wow, this is an art form. And this is something that I feel like I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll need 10 years of coaching to really master this and get this down. It just, it wasn't there. And I, and I felt like there was just at the time a lot more challenge that was existing for me in the world of track and field. And so I went that route and I still stayed in sports performance, strength and conditioning, still enjoyed the heck out of it. And it, I mean, it's my full-time job now and I, and I love every minute of it. And, but one of the things that's really helped me to think of is you think of each set and this again, this being more recently too, even, but things each set being more alive. And and what I mean by that is, um, and, and this is how Gary coached sets is not having a pre-programmed number of reps, and not even, and this would be in the advanced version, but not even executing every rep the same way. So for example, maybe you'd be doing um, a leg press throw, and maybe for some of the reps you'd you'd say quarter quarter he'd say quarter range. You have to do quarter range, then it's half range then it's back to quarters, then it's full range. And you have to react to what he's doing. You have to do it as hard and as fast, explosively as you possibly can while keeping your breathing intact. And then when he decided the set would be done, then that was that. And, uh, and, and then you'd go on to the next thing. And I feel like doing it like that 
and granted too, you know, I, I do believe in the importance of, of writing things down and having, having a plan. And, you know, like I think believe Dan Path said, have a plan, but don't be married to it. At least knowing where you're going. But, um, do, I'll tell you, doing training like that was, was athletic and exciting and fun. And you could feel, you could feel the intensity of it, the raw intensity of it. And when it comes to training, having this intensity that can replicate the game, well, shoot, there it is. You know, I mean, in the past I've done stuff like, um, like you, you clap and you have to react to a clap or something like that for a start. And that's pretty, pretty simple, but I mean, good stuff. And I know, I know other good coaches have done things like that. Um, but the, 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 partners like calling the set or, or a coach calling the set it makes you really a really a part of what the athlete's doing and it's obviously you can't do that in a large group i mean you could you could just have everybody do the exercise and start at once and if you have a big voice you can get them going to be awesome so yeah it's been a big thing lately okay uh dj meager says his question and this being on linkedin so thank you dj is how important is hip flexor development in regards to athletic performance compared to glutes um, so a simple question, but an important question because the hip flexors, if you've seen like the research on sprinters, at least, and if you're, if you work with track at all, uh, hip flexors are where it's at. Like psoas is where it's at. Like if you want to be fast, you got to have that powerhouse there. It's like the, the psoas has been called like the glutes in the front of the body. I think and, and I have a book called the vital psoas and it's like the, the psoas are like the glutes of the front. You just can't see them. Right. So it's like, you know, it's. It's not like you have these um, these websites and movements dedicated to psoas training the way we are with glute training, uh, just because everything and in, in, we do in the weight room at least tends to come back to, um, you know, you know, Insta- do you look good on Instagram or the beach or whatever. So, anyways, we know we need powerful glutes uh, to be effective athletes. Like powerful, they, they can fire at the right time. They can fire in conjunction with other things. Um, but the hip flexors, so the hip flexors, there's two reasons I see they're important. I mean, one would be the psoas, uh, just be, just being a powerhouse in and of itself. Um, and so I'll talk about that first. And it, it's kind of like this. If you're sprinting correctly, that psoas is going to get developed on its own. If you're sprinting, and we say sprinting is the best strength builder. Um, so yeah, sprint well, and that's going to happen. Uh, I'll, I'll go back to the overextension thing. And this is something I learned from Adarian is that or Darian Barr is that when you like overextend out of the start of a sprint, you you stretch your psoas so long that it doesn't really have um, that it, it can't it can't shorten very well. Like like if you can kind of keep yourself in the bucket just a little bit more, that psoas, those cross bridges are a little bit more connected and it's going to be a little bit more uh, responsive. Uh, so. So also I'll talk about the the iliacus. So we've heard of the iliopsoas complex. You have the psoas and the iliacus. Oh, I'm being repetitive here, but uh, so the iliacus is the the part of the muscle that kind of sits on that pelvic bowl. It's uh, it, it it tends to get more triggery. Uh, I think a lot of times when we we think we're working on our psoas with the lacrosse ball or something or whatever, it's really the iliacus, like because that's the one that's easy to feel and 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 that type of thing. Uh, but the thing that the iliacus does that is important is it centers or, or joint centration of the hip socket. And so uh, this was Kelly Baggett who originally wrote this some time ago. And he was talking about having glutes that weren't responsive, weren't firing well. And he did a large number of seated uh, knee raises, basically where you and many of you sports performance coaches know this. 
if you are if your knee goes up to 90 degrees thigh parallel 90 degrees um, anything above that from a leverage perspective only the psoas and iliacus can pull from there so all the adductors and all the other stuff drops out if you're below 90 then you can get adductors and like i guess sartorius or whatever else is the synergist um, flexor so uh, he had he did a bunch of those seated uh, knee raises above 90 and really targeted that iliacus and he noticed within a couple of weeks that his glutes were way more responsive and so uh, I think with anything, like if you're going to build a muscle, if you want a muscle to get big, you want it to get big because the body's working correctly. And then you go out and sprint really hard and play your sport and that muscle will develop on its own. Um, I doubt Asafa Powell got his you know huge um, hip flexor muscles from sitting in the weight room, you know, pounding out the cable knee drive. Like I really doubt it. <laughs> I know they do a lot. If you read some of the Jamaican stuff, they do a lot of those A runs, just like high knee runs. Um, even doing those in a semi-squatted position, you probably even feel your psoas hip flexors a little bit more. Um, so dynamic stuff is is really, if you want to get fast, that's where it's at because it's just a balance of the, the muscle and the fascia and the connective tissue also. I'm not against uh, knee drive work in the weight room. I think it's fine. Uh, but I, I like the idea of train the iliacus you know, selectively to get better centration if you have glute issues. And then just be aware of that good sprinting, good running is going to have a powerful effect on the psoas. It's an important muscle. I do think the glutes are like super overemphasized sometimes just because you have really fast sprinters who actually don't have like huge glutes um, at, at times. I mean, glutes are important to run fast or a horizontal thrust muscle and those things, but um, you get all types and, and big hip flexors are important, especially for track speed. So uh, good question, DJ. Thank you. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. So uh, next, we got a little trifecta here. And so I think what we'll do, well, I'll, I'll cover the first two. So basically, first is how essential is lifting for sprint performance? And second one is best exercises and modalities that transfer from sprinting apart from sprinting itself. So that was from David Maris. And um, uh, I can't pronounce the name of the second person. Um, so anyways, sorry about that. Uh, okay, so again, I, I will plug, um, shameless plug for my book coming out, Speed Strength, that has a lot of in-depth information on this that has taken me quite a while to really compile based off my life experience with speed, sprinting, and weightlifting. Um, so I, I think I'll leave this short, but it's, it's a little bit of a gray area. Um, I think some athletes, like you look at Kim Collins, doesn't lift weights, has, and it has longevity, right? And that's the thing too, is like, it's almost like, like, again, weights are a little bit of, they're a little poison, they're a little medicine, right? Like, and for, it's different. It hits every athlete a little bit differently, but it, it is introducing something unnatural into your system. So the longevity factor and the injury factor is going to be something there. Um, but again, I mean, there, there is a ton of benefits as well. And I, I look at it like this, like the closer you are to the, ha, just having the, the given gifts and somatotype of being an elite sprinter, and especially if you're an elastic driven sprinter, um, the less like real lifting you probably need to do, like heavy squatting, that type of thing. Um, to the point where if you're, if you're built, if you're built for it, I really don't think that you need to squat to sprint fast and that might be heresy, but I just don't think you have to, uh, on the flip side, you know, there's a lot of athletes I think who can get great benefits from partial squats and hip thrusts and Nordic hamstrings and selective Olympic lifting and those types of things, as well as, um, Alex and Tara's ISO stuff, which I think that stuff is awesome. And, uh, we talk about doing no harm too. Like, I think if you're going to do no harm, 
in that realm. If you just want to make sure you have that balance uh, between frictional and elastic, you could call it the muscular and the tendon. Um, just keeping, just doing some partial squats, super low reps, some of Alex Natera's work, um, some oscillatory isometric work. I don't, you know, some select hamstring work. I don't think you're going to go wrong. I don't think you need to deep squat. I really don't. Um, I don't think it's terrible in the early stages of, of performance and those things. Um, but there's athletes who can definitely get away without doing it. The more elastic and gifted you are, the less I think you need to do. Um, if you're kind of on the other end of things, I think it's fine. I think it's good. Um, but it just, again, it all needs to be taken in context, uh, best exercises, modalities. I think I kind of covered them, but again, if you want to learn more, check my book out that is coming out soon. Okay. So next one, uh, and this is kind of a, in the same realm of questions, which is from Lumi, uh, with, uh, five or six eyes at the end, which is, uh, is heavy squatting necessary for high reactive strength? And so, uh, the answer to that is actually definitely not. It's um, so heavy squatting is actually the opposite <laughs> neurologically of being really reactive, especially deep squatting. Um, like d heavy deep squatting is teaching you to hold on to tension, holding, teaching you to put more muscle into the movement, so to speak. Um, where reactive strength is all about releasing energy really quickly through the elastic system. So there's like a give and take and interchange. And, uh, yeah, so I would say uh, it's actually the opposite there for high reactive strength. The one caveat, the one caveat there is, that, and I credit Max Schmarzo for this, is that look at the tendon and connective tissue adaptations of, of resistance training, heavy lifting, and tempo lifting. And I do think that that um, component, so not neurologically speaking, is substantial. And they, that's where we look at like the structural work and then the peaking later where we kind of wash out the negative neurological effects of the lifting and we just get into this fast peaking work and maybe the lifting helped us to optimize that you know lay a little bit more dense connective tissue down in those early stages so from so neurologically it's the opposite uh structurally I th and, and tendon from a tendon perspective i think there can be some benefit all right um all right i think we got time for one or two more so uh, Sachin McDonnell uh, asked the question, the biggest change you've made to your resistance training programs, uh, and it's just simply this, the last few years, taking on the ideals of Jay Schrader and Marv Marinovich and infusing that into my systems. It's been a game changer, uh, outside of neurotyping, obviously, but those two, it's been huge. Okay, uh, Eros Milosinovic, Okay, Eros, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, what did you think of NKT, the reflex stuff Dan Fichter was talking about, and similar neurology-based postural stuff? Okay, so basically asking about neuro stuff, um, anything that's that's neurology-based, even uh, PRI claims to be neuro, it's neuro, you know, it's neurologically based. And so uh, let me just, I'll just really, instead of saying what system I think is awesome, it just here's a trick with, with neuro stuff is first um, do muscle testing and whatever test you're going to do, flexibility testing, muscle testing, however you're judging the success of whatever your intervention was, do it enough to remove your own tester bias for one thing. Uh, because I've had tons of people do muscle tests on me and declare my psoas garbage and terrible and <laughs> dysfunctional <laughs> when really it wasn't. Um, and, and going through NKT actually taught me how to muscle test really well. And that's, that was, um, the course was awesome for that stuff. And then understand the placebo effect. 
understand the fact that if you do something and then you have an intervention that you're going to get better. Um, the key is just the stickiness of everything. How sticky is it? And that is what makes stuff valuable because otherwise I think it's just easy to do a lot of messing around when you could be uh, spending that time doing doing training work and, and like the the Marinovich ball work and and that and that's because that's reflexive that's crazy reflexive through through the reflexes of the spine if we're talking neurology um, so yeah I I would give that um, and then my favorite though that I really use and fully integrate is PRI just because it's simple and it's structurally sound like based like from from landmarks and you can see the left rib flare and you can understand the pelvic tipping and one hamstring being um, or one um, hamstring flexibility test. Uh, it would being less than the other even though the hamstrings are the same um, length but anyways you, you hopefully you get what i'm saying okay uh last question we'll take here is this uh and and two people ask kind of the same thing is basically best way to activate glute, glutes when jumping vertically uh another person uh this, that was cmom jump and then Kayvon persia asked how uh, to work on the hips and control timing of the glutes for a one foot jumper and how to implement that in a vertical ignition thank you uh, <laughs> all right so basically let's let's just go on this so let's just go on the the glutes and their role in jumping vertically and then uh, timing factors so uh, again i i was probably in this phase about five years ago six years ago especially once i started catching on to hip thrusts barbell hip thrust as a means to help sprinters track sprinters is i was also thinking i was like oh you don't you need glutes and hamstrings like crazy in a single leg jump, like uh, like a high jump? Like that makes sense. Like you know, high jumpers should do a lot of that stuff too. And you know, the more I've gone along, the more I realize like like high jumping, jumping vertically, is really it, it, the the biggest two things by far are the feet and position. <laughs> Having good feet that can intercept the ground properly and transfer energy to the maximal amount, and then getting the body in the right position at the right time to project oneself vertically if you do this enough your fascial system will adapt and get very strong okay and that's huge achilles tendon big time um watch hollis conway high jump 710 and that's a man whose achilles is straight up loaded um and so the foot in the fascial system the achilles that's and position and timing that's big time with getting up uh you have to have glutes that fire at the right time so but the glutes and the feet have a link so Doing more barefoot work. I, I'm not against glute activation. I think you can do glute activation exercises if you need to feel that. I don't have a problem with that stuff. But basically just doing more stuff with minimalistic footwear. The more responsive your feet are and you're doing things right. Like Gary Ward says, uh, the joints act and the muscles react. So if you're a single leg jumper, as long as I would say that you don't have like, like you're not always having like really tight hamstrings or low back, like where there might be a clear compensation, uh, it was like, it's in the, the, I think the book is the vital glutes. Like I have the vital psoas. I think it's the vital glutes. I'm trying to remember, but, uh, there's the test where you do the, you put your, um, thumb on the glute, your finger on the hamstring, and then your other hand on the, the QL on the other side, you do a hip extension, which goes first. Basically, if you have a lot of like hamstring and, and QL low back issues, maybe your glutes are a little bit underactive and doing some basic strength can help. But at the end of the day, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm not going to take your glutes to the end point for the sake of um, this, this jump. And you also look at where the impulse is, right? So we we're looking at like um, talking about the Marv Marinovich, 90% comes out of the impulse at that specific point of contact. Well, 
Uh, I would. I, I, one thing I actually do like for this is physio ball. Uh, you could do a physio ball barefoot single leg wall squat at around about the point what, of hip flexion that you are going to be in when you have that point of contact and just go through rapid pulsing and feel what your glutes are doing. Um, the instability of the ball is going to make your body react a little bit faster. It's going to kind of keep things wired in a little bit better. And it's just a nice glute and posterior change, chain challenge to that area that fits in specifically to a single leg jump. So anyways, uh, that does it for the podcast today. Uh, it's always awesome ta- answering your questions. I apologize for those questions that I did not get to, um, but we appreciate you guys being here and being part of the show. Um, again, in closing, don't forget, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, as well as an awesome blog and customer service. They are doing an amazing thing in bringing you the best of each um, each asp- each category of sport tech. And um, also, finally, if you enjoyed the show, leave us a leave us a rating or review on Stitcher, iTunes, whatever you're listening to the show on. We would totally appreciate that in uh, just sharing the word of what we're doing and all these awesome coaches who have taken the time to help us all be a little bit better in serving our athletes. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.